This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 83. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 83 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Technica. There we go. Spit it out there. All right. Hey, <laughs> here we are. It's uh, number 83 and uh, doing another late at night episode. Wife and kids have been out of town for two weeks. And so uh, I have been, you'd think, oh, a party at Matt's house. Well, not exactly. This is something we do. Um, the wife will take the kids, and uh, I stay here and at home and get stuff done. And let me tell you, I've been getting stuff done. But I've also been staying up late and, of course, sleeping in a little bit, too, which, you know, you got to do if you have kids and you don't get the opportunity to sleep in till 8 or 9, uh, typically. So it's been a treat, I'll tell you that. So um, I'll tell you all about what I've been doing uh, after I tell you about our guest. I have on today Pablo Munguia. And uh, Pablo was a recommendation from our friend uh, Steve Genowick, who you would have heard of from our episode with Al Schmidt. That was a few episodes back. So if you haven't heard that, please go back and take a listen to Steve and Al tell great tales. And um, yeah, so Pablo Munguia is on. Now, I did say in the Facebook post on, when did I do that? Saturday. On Saturday when I did that, the information I gave you was correct. He has worked with an enormous amount of artists, you know, including um, Sting, Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, Carol King, Ricky Martin. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. And he's, of course, he's worked with, you know, Quincy Jones, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, David Foster, Randy Jackson. Uh, yeah. So the guy's been around the block. What I failed to mention in that Facebook post was that Pablo has recently been appointed director of, I'm reading this, he's been appointed director of the Master of Music and Music Production Technology and Innovation Program at Berkeley's, Berkeley School of Music, Berkeley's campus in Valencia, Spain. So that's his new gig. But the other thing that he does which is really fascinating is he does, he participates in uh, not just, you know, making records and stuff like that, but he's been nominated actually for 16 primetime Emmy awards and won five times in the category of outstanding, outstanding sound mixing for a variety series or specials. So um, he's worked with teams uh, that work on the super, well, he's worked on the Super Bowl halftime show for many years. Uh, the American Music Awards, the MTV Music Awards, the Billboard Awards, and the BET Awards. He's worked on American Idol, the X Factor, uh, the opening ceremonies of the Special Olympics in China. And in Mexico, where he's from natively, he worked on the Pan American Games and was in charge of the audio for uh, La Academia Ultima Generacion. Anyhow, yeah, so Pablo is got this... Uh, I don't know what to call it, but he's he's got this kind of level of experience that, of course, yeah, he makes records. That's fine. But he also does these incredibly complex and intense live things. Like he was, you'll hear in the interview, we talk about his uh, time, the time when he went to China to do the opening ceremony for the Special Olympics and the intensity of that and what an ass kicker it was. So super fascinating guest. Can't wait for you to, to uh, listen to it. 
Um, I got to be honest with you. So, like I said, he's in Valencia, Spain now. So we moved from Los Angeles to Valencia, Spain. So the time difference, he said, okay, I can do it. So it's early in the morning for me and late at night for you or vice versa. So I said, well, let's go for late at night for me and early in the morning for you. And he said, okay, great. So, you know, I think it was like uh, 10 or 11 o'clock at night for me, maybe 6 or 7 a.m. on his time. So I'll be honest with you, I was a little tired. I was pretty worn out from a long day, which I'm about to describe to you what I've been doing so you'll understand why. Anyhow, I'm a little tired. I don't really talk all that much, which is probably a good thing. And I just let Pablo run with it. And, you know, you, you'll hear me interject. I'm not completely absent or drifting off or anything like that. I'm there. I'm, I'm present. So. so that's it. Pablo Munguia coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. And I uh, want to preemptively thank our friend Steve Jenowick for uh, hooking us up for that. So yeah, so what have I been doing? Um, so last last episode, maybe it was the episode before that, I talked about the book uh, called The Joy of Less, and it's all about you know purging stuff out of your life, really, really kind of just you know cleaning out the crap. That's that's the that's the uh, short end of it. So that's what I've been doing. Um, I mean, I've been doing that in one form or another for the last several years uh, when my wife and the kids go out of town. So. I'm not a stranger to it. I've already, you know, I know about, you know, I digitize documents. I, you know, shred those documents after I'm done and just kind of move stuff out. But I've just been putting the pedal to the metal with this. And I really, really got a lot of stuff done and uh, have a very clutter-free house right now. It's pretty outstanding. So looking forward to the wife and kids coming home and seeing that and going, oh my gosh. How about that? There, let me tell you about this this angle of it. So uh, in Berkeley, California, there's a place there called Urban Ore. And, you know, if you ever get the chance to go there, I highly encourage you to do so. It's a place that you can take your crap to that all the stuff that you think, I shouldn't throw this in the garbage. This shouldn't be in the landfill or somebody could use this, but I don't have the time to sell it. And I just want to give it away. These guys do that. So I took a bunch of stuff over there, and then um, what they didn't take, I would then go over to, and I know this is like, has nothing to do with audio. I will tie it in, though, I swear. I went over to the El Cerrito Recycling Center in El Cerrito, California. Let me tell you something, friends. You have never seen a more incredible recycling center <laughs> than this place. If you think about it, whether it's uh, oil, fluorescent bulbs, styrofoam, uh, steel, plastic, uh, paper, electronics, you name it, uh, they recycle it. And then they have this little section where you can, you know, give stuff away like books or CDs or whatever. So I've been going there like constantly filling up my car, jam packed full, just creating an outbox of stuff at the house. And then, you know, an, one outbox turns into two, three, four, and five. And it's pretty soon, you know, I've got a pretty monumental, uh, amount of crap that I'm just trying to get rid of. So I take it there, get get rid of it. Now, in the process of doing that, there is an electronics recycling, as I mentioned, and it's this box where people just dump electronics in. And obviously, these people, there's people behind the scenes that are, you know, dismantling and uh, selling the stuff off and, you know, obviously sending it where it needs to go. So there's this box full of electronics that, you know, I dump some stuff off and then I go over and I look in the electronics bin just to see what's there. Obviously, I'm trying not to take anything home. 
and there's always the same crew of guys there. It's always guys. And they're, uh, you know, they're pulling stuff out and they're taking it. And uh, so, yeah, so that's what I'm trying to avoid. So I go there today and on my final run before the wife and the kids get home from this trip, and I get everything out of the car. I'm like almost ready to throw my hands up in victory that I've got rid of so much stuff. And I go over to the electronics bin and I look in and directly in front of me on the bottom of this thing is a Tascam DA88. And I'm like, oh, should I take this? And I really had to really just dig deep into my soul and go, okay, look, why do you need this? Playback? Okay, whose playback? Your playback? You don't own any D88 tapes. Okay, the next train of thought is, but if I want to transfer something for somebody, there's a machine right there. And then I thought, do you really want to be the asshole that picks up the DA88 out of the electronics bin at the recycling center and put somebody's precious tape in there to do a transfer? I thought, no, I'm not going to be that guy. So I left it. <laughs> and I just couldn't help but think about it on the entire drive home. I was like, should I, should I have got it? Oh, no. Maybe I should go back. And then I just I came to my senses and I just said, nope. And I came home to an incredibly clean, clutter-free house. <laughs> and I'm much happier, so... That's my purging story, and uh, I'll put a link. I didn't do it last time. I'll put a link to The Joy of Less. You can uh, pick it up uh, at your local bookstore or on Amazon. I downloaded it to my Kindle. So, uh, yeah, less clutter, right? So before we go over to Pablo, I just want to say, hey, thanks so much. Uh, over 5,000, and actually, as I even say this, we're probably close to 5,500 likes on Facebook we just had a huge jump in likes. And so I just want to say thanks. I think that's, uh, that's very cool. And I hope that, uh, you all are continuing to get, uh, good information out of the show and not growing tired of it, trying to keep it, trying to keep it fresh with some consistency and some predictability to some degree. So, uh, yeah, don't want to change it up every time, but do want to keep it fresh. So there it is. Yeah. Good times, good times. Well, I tell you what, it's uh, it's late, and uh, I need to wrap this up. So let's quit talking, and I'll get on over to my interview with Pablo Munguia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Good morning to you there in Valencia, Spain, and welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show this early in the morning. And thank you. <laughs> I just want to point out to the audience that you you're up at six a.m. Uh, the next day and it's 9 p.m. where I'm at in California. And uh yeah, I wish we were brought together. I wish I could tell you that uh that uh I'm still on jet lag, but unfortunately that's no longer the case. <laughs> so when did you arrive there? Uh we literally got here a week ago. Um ah. yeah, so Tuesday a week ago. A little bit over a week ago. Now and there's several things to report here. Number one, we were uh, we're brought together, of course, in this interview, courtesy of our friend Steve Genowick. Steve recommended that I reach out to you. He thought that you really could bring uh, some interesting perspective uh, to the to the conversation that we have here on the show. And also, I'm to learn that you're the reason you're in Valencia, Spain, is because you are now uh, a part of Berkeley Berkeley School of Music. There, correct? Correct. Yeah, I just uh, just joined the ranks here. Um, I will be starting in the fall, which is coming up pretty soon. Will be the program director of the Masters in Music Production and Technology Innovation. 
over here at wow. the Valencia campus. And you have a very impressive academic background as it is, because I, I was reading that, uh, first of all, you got your uh, bachelor's degree from MIT. Yeah. And uh, you got a master's degree from uh, UT Austin. And uh, you've also done some work at UCLA, uh, working on the curriculum there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a kind of a weird case. I was always a really good student in high school. <laughs> and so... Uh, so even though, you know, music and audio were things that I was always really, really excited about, uh, I was also pretty excited about calculus and physics and all that kinds of things. And so I, uh, to me, it seemed like uh, it was uh, made more sense or I don't know, just more sense, but uh, it was the, the reasonable choice to, to pursue that. And so I did, you know, for the first, uh, I mean, good 10 years I spent... Um, you know, doing a bachelor's and then working a little bit and then uh, going back and uh, starting my PhD. And uh, and then that's, uh, yeah, it was at that point that uh, I switched gears and uh, looked at music and, and audio as something that I wanted to do. Wow. that's uh, That takes a lot of discipline and a lot of focus. So a lot of your, well, you've got a lot of experience and the experience that I was reading about that you've won many awards for has been your work uh, on the Grammy Awards um, as well as work for Grease Live. Mm -hmm. Having the mind that you have focused uh, and on it, I could see how you'd be really well suited for those jobs. Yeah, I, no doubt. I, I think that it all, uh, I think the time I spent uh, doing the whole, uh, it was material science uh, and uh, electrical engineering thing that uh, I, it's, it's definitely come to bear on this. And, and yeah, it's it, the discipline and the training, all that absolutely comes into, comes into play for sure. Um, that said, I think, I think also, um, I think one has to have a kind of a disposition, you know, a certain personality. And, and I think anybody who does uh, live television has a, has a certain type of personality that, you know, either, you know, loves, loves pain or loves, uh, <laughs> loves, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, enjoys the pressure is, I think, uh, I think that, that, that's, that's really helpful too, you know? Now your journey uh, starts uh, in Mexico because you're you're uh, a native of Mexico. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Mexico City. Um, I spent uh, the first eighteen years of my life in the, uh, in Mexico. Um, grew up uh, I grew up playing in bands around the city. Uh, playing, you know, I was I was a drummer. Started off as a drummer, and uh, uh, my cousin, who was you know one of my best friends since I was you know since I was a kid. Uh, was a guitar player and uh, you know singer in a band and and he needed a drummer so he said you know hey if you want to hang out you should learn how to play drums and so so he taught me you know all the basic beats you know he says okay you hit for every two times you hit the hi hat you hit the kick drum once and for every two times you hit the kick drum you hit the snare drum once and once you can keep that pattern going for a minute you give me a call and so I'm like okay I went home and you know and, and he he let me borrow one of these like little not even jazz kit, but like a toy kit. And I took it home and, and I practiced, practiced, practiced. And after, uh, after a while, I called him. I said, hey, listen, I can do one minute. It's like, okay, great. When you can do two minutes, you give me a call. I said, okay, I went back. And I, oh, my gosh. I practiced, practiced again. And, and I called him. Hey, I can do two minutes. Like, okay, great. When you can do three minutes, you give me a call. I'm like, okay, cool. So I went back and practiced some more. And, and I called him. Okay, I can do three minutes. Okay, you're hired. 
and that was it. I mean, that's how I started being a drummer in, the, in this band. And yeah, basically, it was a rock and roll band. You just say, okay, just count it off, and you know, we'll we'll follow you. And uh, that was it. Wow. Uh, you say you spent the first eighteen years of your life in Mexico. Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, I went. To, you know, I went to uh, you know elementary school, uh, middle school, high school over there, and uh, I. Uh, I learned English when I was pretty young. I mean, you know, I was in first grade. Yeah, between kindergarten and first grade, I learned English. And uh, what you hear back there a little bit might be my dog. She was kind of she's she's rearranging herself on the on the floor. That's fine. If and if my dog comes in, we're going to hear snoring. Okay, cool. Well, she's uh, she's a pretty she's a light sleeper. She's hanging <laughs> out here. So you get you graduated from high school, and then did you go straight to MIT, or did you take some time off between uh, high school and college? No, no, no. Went straight to MIT. Uh, it was you know it was kind of the, the path you know you you know after after high school, go straight and uh, um, yeah started started at MIT right away. Uh, I, I was eighteen when I when I started at MIT, and then you know usual did four years of, of undergraduate. During the time that I was doing undergraduate, I also I was also working the summers at IBM. So uh, so starting the the second summer I was at MIT, I started uh, working at IBM and doing research, uh, primarily uh, material circuit design research. So it was like how to make uh, new interesting circuits with interesting new materials, and and I had a blast. I mean that was that was just you know so much fun. What year was that? Um, so I started at IBM in 89, I want to say, 89, 90. Okay. So, uh, so I actually, you know, got to live through a, a pretty interesting time at IBM. When I started there, IBM was the biggest company in the world. I mean, there, there was no doubt. Nobody could touch them. It was a little bit like what Apple is right now. And uh and so it was, they had money, tons of money to burn. And so one of the things that they established uh, was a research lab whose sole purpose was to do fundamental research just for the sake of doing research. And uh, there was no pressure to to make this be a product or to make this be something applicable. I mean, you'd find there, you know, guys who were working on, you know, origin of the universe stuff or like why... You know why things work a certain way. It just it was it was it was just a really awesome place. Tons of mathematicians, uh, uh, chemists, physicists, uh, engineers. This place it was uh, in Yorktown Heights, and in, uh, in um, I don't want to say upstate. It was in upstate New York, but it was uh, north of New York City, in uh, Westchester County, and it was this, just this beautiful facility with ton, you know, just money, no object, just go there and, and do, do, uh, interesting stuff. And, um, so I was very lucky to start there and, and it was just, just such a, it was a really cool place. It was, what was really fun about the place was that you could go down to lunch and then the cafeteria, pretty much everyone was, you know, was the same. And so you ordered a sandwich and you sat down and, and you were sitting in front of a guy who was doing this just really basic research and, mathematics on you know string theory and and over lunch he would just tell you about what he was doing it was just really no uh, no pretentiousness just just really relaxed kind of place and so that was 89 but see what happened in 90 and 
really 1990, is that for the first time, IBM stock was overtaken by this upstart company that was uh, that was just all the rage. It was this 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 little company out of uh, out of California that had no uh, facilities. So so you know, IBM is you can at that time they they were building circuits. They were building. They were building computers, so they had these huge fabrication labs, these fabs that they call them, and and the fabrication labs cost upwards of a billion dollars each. You know, you had you know a one billion dollar fab, and then you had a five billion dollar fab, and the ten billion dollar fab. I mean, these were gigantic places. And the thing, am I am I saying billions? I'm maybe maybe not billions, but but certainly, you know, in the order of you know hundred million dollars for for a facility that that was just designed to build circuits. So so you had these, you know, you know, 100 billion 100 million dollar facilities or you know or 50 million dollar facilities and and they um they they built kind of their reputation around this like they, you know this is where we build these things and it was just this big big um, bigger was better. And so this little upstart company out of California w- suddenly their stock overtook IBM stock. And this was a major crash in, in in the IBM culture and in their in their income and in their expectations because they're like, how is it possible this little company that has nothing but a bunch of guys sitting in front of computers, in front of you know, not even real mainframe computers, but little desktop computers, and they're just sitting there programming away? How is it possible that these guys have a higher stock valuation than we do? Yeah, this little company was Microsoft. <laughs> of course. Yeah, so you can see, you know, the the David and Goliath story just repeats itself over time. What I'm really curious about is the culture of not only MIT but the culture at of IBM and the early lessons you learned in those experiences at school and at, and and working at IBM. How that culture positively influenced you in in the future in audio like we're talking about radically different worlds or are we talking about radically different worlds i don't know that they're radically different worlds i think the what connects both worlds is is the people mm-hmm. is is the engineering so so i think that the the culture of engineering is the same in both places that's i think the the connecting line and 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 yeah, this is a culture of of no pretentiousness, of of just you know regular guys sitting down to have lunch, and it doesn't matter if you're a lowly you know summer intern or if you're you know a preeminent PhD, you know doing doing you know super interesting research, and so I think that is that that part of the culture of of saying yeah, well we're just engineers were just doing the same thing you know and i think that part is really what applies i think that that's that's been the part that really applies in in uh doing any kind of audio engineering mm. is is this uh you know you treat everybody the same way whether you know they're the the runner on the session or whether they're the, the, the producer or, you know the artist everybody's just you know having a regular day and doing the job for the day and uh i i think that that would be uh, that, that those those lessons and those that that's 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 the biggest uh, point in common. I, I would say. Mm. After 
MIT and, and working at IBM, you would later go on to uh, uh, UT Austin. What were, you, what were you studying specifically there? I mean, the path wasn't quite, quite as straight as all that. Uh, because uh, after I, so when I was at IBM, they were, they were very happy with what, the work I was doing. And, you know, we were doing some, uh, some pretty cool, cool stuff with new material at the time. It was, it was called porous silicon. So we were making this um, uh, LEDs that were emitting light in the visible range made out of silicon. And this was kind of a, a new thing. And still is, is, is fairly, I mean, now, even so many years later, pretty groundbreaking. And so we, um, I, I, was, I was in the research team that we, we fab fabricated the world's first uh, silicon LED and that emitted light in the visible range. And, and so they were pretty excited with, with the work that I was doing. And they said, look, it'd be great if you could stay here and work. Uh, but you need to get a PhD if you want to lead a research team. You're going to have to do that. Otherwise, you will always be working you know, for somebody else. And I said, okay, great. Well, what do I have to do? And they said, well, you can stay here and do the research here and you know, go to Columbia or something like that, or, or you can apply somewhere else. And so, so I said, well, you know what? I will, uh, I'm going to take a, a break and I'm going to go back to Mexico and I'm going to apply to a bunch of schools and then I'll, I'll come back. And they're like, oh, no, you better not do that because if you take a break, you'll never come back. And I was like, no, 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 I promise I'll come back. So like, no, 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 everybody who takes a break just doesn't come back. And, and uh, but, but the other, I mean, there was another practical reason for me. And the practical reason was that um, I needed to be funded to, to, in order to do a PhD. When you do a PhD, you really want to make, be certain. It takes, it takes about five years to do a PhD. And and engineering, and so I just wanted to be certain that there was enough funding, and so I, I went into interview for, for a grant for 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 my to start my PhD there, and and thankfully the guy was very honest and forthcoming, and when I asked him, okay, well, where the will the funding be there for the next five years? He said, well, I can't really guarantee you that. That's, we're not really sure at this point, and yeah, in fact, they saw a lot of cuts and a lot of. Uh, pretty dramatic changing of their mission in the time that I was there, uh, this research lab. So, so they, it was pretty, it wasn't cert, it wasn't clear that I was going to be funded all the way through. And so running out of funding when you're doing your PhD means that instead of taking five years, you take seven or you take eight, and, you know, that's just the time can really get away from you. So, so that's, that's part of the reason I chose to go somewhere else, even though I was so happy there. What I ended up doing was calling Manny's music in uh, in New York City and and saying, "Hey, uh, I want to buy some gear." And uh, and so with together with with another friend from high school, uh, we 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 bought a bunch of gear and I took it back to Mexico and we said, "Okay, let's try to record an album of our band." And so so that summer and well, I should say that fall and you know the. the following you know six months i spent in mexico trying to figure out how to record an album how to make all this stuff work and and to be honest we were completely unsuccessful or we just sucked at it and so uh, <laughs> uh but we had a lot of fun and uh and so after that i uh, applied to a bunch of schools and really the school that had the most funding that that was you know willing to say okay yeah let's go let's hit the ground running was was ut um a guy there named Al Tash was my uh, my thesis supervisor. The thing about Al Tash is that he was he used to be the president of of research at Motorola, vice president for research, and he um, 
He was a super interesting guy, super, super interesting guy. And oh my gosh, so excited about the work that we were doing. I would get a, into, the, into the lab around 7 a.m. in the morning. I was the first graduate student to, to show, to walk in the door and, and he would have already been there since 5 a.m. Passionate. Oh my gosh, yeah. He, he would like underline and, and highlight all these articles. He would like have a stack of papers, of, of research papers for me to read and be like, oh, look, the, the Japanese are doing this and the Brazilians are trying that and the Russians are doing this. And, you know, it'd be great if we could, you know, do what, what these guys over in Germany are doing. And, and I'd be like, okay, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll take a look at the papers. And like, oh yeah, yeah, take a look at this stuff and we'll have a, we'll have a meeting at nine and, you know, we can talk about all this stuff. And, and I, I was just like, Whatever Kool-Aid this guy's drinking, I want some of that because he was a pretty happy guy, you know. And, and mind you, by the time I met him, he, I mean, this doesn't sound so good, but, but by the time I met him, he had already had a heart attack from, from being so excited and so passionate about his work. And uh, so, so when I met him, he had already slowed down quite a bit, but he was such you know, such an inspiration of, of a guy who was just super excited, super, you know, into what we were doing. And, and I'd really never met anybody like that in, in engineering and, phys, you know, in, in our area of research. And so when I, when I was there working with them, I, I started thinking like, well, what is it that I'm really excited about? What, what am I super, super as excited as he is about this stuff that we're doing here? What am I super excited about? And, and, and yeah, just started thinking and thinking about this. And, and what came up was, you know, whenever I have free time, whenever I'm, I'm on vacation, whenever I'm not in school or not working, I just go back to Mexico and I go back to trying to jump in a studio and try to figure out how to make the, the recordings that we're doing of our band sound better. You know, sound, how come they don't sound like the record? And what are we doing wrong? You know, and, and uh, and so that was that was really the, the guiding thing, and, and that, that that I thought, well, this is maybe this is what I need to be looking at. And I literally walked into the library at uh, you know at UT Austin, and and I I said, okay, well, I want to find a book or something that says about you know that talks about uh, music production. You know, what is what does that mean? What is and, and audio engineering, you know, and so, so I opened the book and it said, you know, there's a lot of schools. Actually, no, I take it back. There was one school that offered a program in music production and audio engineering at the time, and and it was it was Berkeley, and uh, and so I thought, well, you know, I'm not getting any younger, and <laughs> I, you know, I'm in a hurry to to get this going. I was uh, so I I better go to school. I better, you know, it seemed to me like that was the fastest way to learn to get there and and you know i was also a product of school you know i had been successful at school it seemed to me like that was also a good a good plan to follow so i made a little bit of a bet against myself because see now you also have to consider that i was applying to music school and i'd been told all my life that's like well uh you're no, you're not, you're not a musician. You know, you're not good at this stuff. You're not, uh, you know, what you're really good at is this other stuff. And so this, this music thing is not, not really where it's at. And so, I never thought that that I'd get admitted. So, so I, I kind of made made this bet that I said, look, if they admit me 
to music school and they give me a scholarship, then it means that they're willing to bet money on me, on, on that, that I'm worth the investment. So if they do that, then I'll go. If they don't, then I need to rethink this. And lo and behold, they said, yeah, you're admitted. And, and they, uh, they gave me a scholarship. I didn't immediately go to Berkeley. I first finished my master's and, and I kind of left things off with, you know, with, with the whole research thing at a place where, where I thought, well, if something doesn't work out, I could come back to this. I could go back. And, and they said, you know, the doors are always open if you ever want to come back. And, and uh, you know, some people talk about the fact that if you have a fallback plan, you'll never make it in, in, in the business. And, and I have to say, I had a fallback plan. The fallback was, well, I guess I'll just go back to doing this engineering thing and, and that'll be good. But I have to say, once I started doing music school and started uh, working in studios and, working, like, and, and figuring out how all this stuff worked, I never looked back. It was just so exciting. It was so like, I, I, I became this guy. I became my, my thesis advisor. I was like super excited. Like, oh my God, did you look at this new microphone? Oh my God, did you, <laughs> you know, like this RE20. Oh my God. This is so, so cool. amazing. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I, I was, at, at Berkeley, there's this culture of, uh, you know, everybody's a music geek, mm-hmm. you know, that you're uh you know that, that that everybody's super geeky about uh, about all the all the music and all the you know audio and music production and 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 I I felt like this is exactly where I fit in because because see I was I was an MIT geek and I was super excited about you know all this other stuff and and then all of a sudden I was like oh wow no this is even better you know I can I can I, you can be a geek about about music and about audio and this is you know so much more fun, you know? So, so yeah, I, I felt like it, it was a perfect fit for me. At what point did you move out to, cause you lived in Los, you moved to Los Angeles at some point. Right, right, right. So, oh yeah. So I, I skipped the part about, uh, so after I, I finished my master's in Texas, I went back to Mexico to try to record an album again, because what do you do when you have time off? You go back and you try to do it. You again. go to Mexico uh, to record a record. Exactly. So, so I spent the next, uh, actually the next two years in Mexico, again, trying to figure out how to do it, you know, and, and uh, this time around, we, uh, the guy I was, I was working with, uh, he, he said, okay, now we're really going to do it. So, you know, he had, he had just, his family had just come into some, some money. So he said, you know, let's buy a console and let's buy some recording machines and let's uh, get some microphones and let's, uh, you know, you figure out whatever, whatever we need and, and let's let's just do it. And so, so yeah, I bought this you know giant analog console. You know, from uh, I, it was from Holland. It was it was a Dutch console, an Owen uh, a DNR Orion console. How I arrived at choosing this console, I can only say I probably opened up a magazine and I saw an ad, and it was probably in Mix magazine or EQ and one of these magazines and. And I just kept looking. Like, it's like the quietest console with you know least amount of noise, most transparent. And, and I thought, you know, oh yeah, that sounds good. That should be a good console. <laughs> and so, so we 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 bought this console, and then, uh, or rather, I should say, he bought this console. And and then uh, I was like, okay, we need recorders, so we need you know some kind of machine to record. And and at the time, the the all the rage was 
was these new multi-track modular digital recorders. And uh, so, so uh, we ended up buying a bunch of ADATs. And when I say a bunch, I mean three ADATs. And trying to figure out, okay, how do we make them work together, and how does this, how does this all work? So, so that's that was kind of my first, uh, I guess, entry point into this whole, into the whole, uh, you know, studio business and, and trying to figure out things. And and I remember at the time we we bought a single microphone, or actually I think we bought two microphones. We bought an SM57 and we bought a 414. And those were our only two microphones, and the 57 was supposed to be for the guitars. And the 414 was supposed to be for the vocals, and that was that was it. You know, that was the the extent of our microphone collection. The console, of course, had a bunch of mic pre, so you know that was something we didn't have to think about. And then, uh, yeah, we the guy who sold us the console and and who sold us, you know, a bunch of outboard gear as well as well as the the ADATs. I remember he he came down to Mexico to set up the the console and to get everything connected and. And I remember he sat with me and we, we did all the, all the wiring and, you know, we set up a, a star ground system for everything. And, and uh, we retrofitted the, the, the electrical system of, the house, of this guy's basement so we could, everything could work there. And, and it was just it was a really awesome time to just everything that he was saying was everything that anybody said. I was just like absorbing, like like a, like it was like a sponge, just sucking it all in. And he, um, I remember when we were done with installing the whole thing, he said he turned around, and he said, "Okay, well now here's your board." And I remember he he played the first you know first piece of music on it, and we you know we had a, we had bought these Genelec speakers, which again at the time was a brand new company had just started making speakers, and and so we um, we sat there and we listened, and we were all like super excited and. So he turned around and said, okay, well, um, when does the engineer that's going to run all this show up? When is he going to show up? And and I said, uh, well, actually, I'm the guy who's going to run everything. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, so do you know how to use the board? And I said, well, no, actually, I have never used one of these things. I said, okay. Um so he says, do you have any questions? I said, sure. Let's start at the top. What does the first button do up there? I was like, no, you're kidding. I said, no, 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 I'm not kidding. What does the first button do? Let's start there. And, and we just moved from the top all the way to the bottom and, uh, until it made sense to me. And Were you a good note taker? I, I took notes, but I don't think that it was all about the notes. I was just, everything was just going in really fast. Like, yeah. Okay, so that... It, you know, at the end of the day, it all made sense. You know, it was laid out. Everything was designed to make sense. At least it made sense to me. And, yeah. you know, the all the, the routing and all the, you know, all the electrical connections, everything, all that's part of, all that, that part of it made a lot of sense to me. And um, it was, I think it was more about learning the, the why and the how, you know. I remember when he first started talking about EQ, I was like, EQ, what, what are those two letters mean and so it was just it was just learning the lingo learning the language of what he was saying and 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 then somehow translating it to something that made sense wow so so the adventure begins with this console and these adats and your right. and your buddy and you're off and running exactly and uh and so we we did it again we tried again and again 
you know, it sounded closer to a record, but it wasn't, it was definitely not there. You know, we were, we still had a ways to go. So I said, okay, well, I think, you know, white guys, I think maybe it's time to to go to school. Actually, we did finish that record. I, I you know, I, I, sh- I shouldn't completely downplay that. Uh, we we did finish the record of a buddy of ours who was also part of the band. It was this guy from Norway, was an amazing uh, producer and programmer, and and so so he said, you know, I'll I'll you know I'll he did all the programming, all the arranging for the record, and and I just sat there learning from him as well. You know, like he he was running Logic in this. Uh, at, of course, at the time it was called uh, Notator Logic. Right. Um, it was owned by eMagic, I think. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, eMagic uh, on a, on a little Macintosh computer, and uh, the, he 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 just sat there programming, and I was just fascinated. I was like, "Wow, this is so cool! This is such an easy way to to get everything, get all the music organized, and get, you know, kind of get the arrangement going." And and so so I learned a bunch from him as well. But eventually, when it came down to recording the you know the drums and the guitars and all this stuff, he said, "Okay, well, guys, I'm going to go back to Norway to." a real studio and I'm going to cut all these tracks and then I'll come back and, you know, we'll cut the vocals here. And so, so we ended up, uh, so I ended up recording all the vocals in Mexico, but everything else was, was cut in Norway. Yeah. And then he, he, through a buddy of his who lived in LA, he, um, he found a mixer to, to uh, mix this, this record for us. And actually his buddy knew Sherry Sutcliffe, who many in LA will, will recognize this this this, uh, this fantastic uh, uh, music coordinator and project coordinator and and so she uh, hooked us up with Jess Sutcliffe, uh, who was her husband and 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 she said yeah no Jess will mix your record and and he he was amazing he, I mean well okay look at the time we were just like wow this is so cool somebody's gonna actually mix our record in in LA too, you know, and, and so, you know, she, she, you know, they got us an amazing deal and we were in this, what at the time was a project studio. Of course, this, you know, project studio had a, had a, a Neve console and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a, a fantastic place to work at, you know, for, for us, you know, we were these, these, you know, kids from Mexico just coming in with our, with our ADAT tracks and, <laughs> and Jess was, you know, was just so cool and just so talented. I mean, he was, he's, he's a great mixer. And uh, he, uh, I remember he hated the ADATs. He was like, I'm going to kill these machines. You know, oh, they, yeah. they don't lock up. And, you know, he, he started throwing things at the machines like, lock up. So Jess, yeah, he, he mixed our, 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 first, our first record. And, uh, and then when it was all done, I was like, well, guys, I think I need to go to school now. Because I need to learn how to do all this stuff myself, you know, so I can, so I can be more helpful, so I can be more useful, and so uh, that's when I left Mexico and went uh, straight to to Boston and started at Berkeley. What happened after that? Uh, after Berkeley, so yeah, did right you go back Berkeley, to Mexico and try to do another record? <laughs> right, you would think so, right? Unfortunately, no. I, you know, we uh, I didn't go back to Mexico to do another record. I went straight to LA and. See, at the time, I thought, well, I'll either go to New York or L.A. or Nashville or Miami. These were kind of the choices, you know, like, okay, I want to go to a big place. And and the thing is, at the time, I was, you know, if I had left, you know, school, engineering school broke, 
when I left music school, I was worse than broke. You know, if you know, if I was underwater at first, I was like, you know, Jacques Cousteau, like <laughs> exploring the depths of debt. You, you were the Jacques Cousteau of broke. I love that. Yes, and uh, so so I needed to I needed a job that was going to pay me just money to eat and you know pay the rent and and so so unfortunately, even though I love New York and I love the idea of being in New York. Uh, at the time, if you were an intern in New York, you could spend you know six months, a year, and not be paid while you were working as an intern in a studio. And so, so I thought I I can't afford to do that. And and plus, from having lived in New York before, I knew how expensive it was to live in the city. So I thought you know I I don't think that's a good idea. I better go to a place where they pay. You know, starting off as a runner and. And a place that's cheap. And at the time, you know, it may not seem like it makes sense, but at the time, LA was super cheap. You know, I remember the first place I rented was $350 a month. It was, it was a steal. And and I could make enough money as a runner to pay the rent and, you know, and, and eat. And I remember I, I shipped my motorcycle cross-country from Boston to LA, and I thought, I'll be a runner. I'll, you know, I'll drive a motorcycle. And... And the the manager at the first studio I worked at, he he said, "Oh yeah, you're gonna drive a motorcycle. All right, let me show you this." And he showed me a big pair of BBS and Westlake BBS M sixes. And he said, "You think you can carry that in the back of your motorcycle?" I'm like, uh, no. He says, "Okay, you're gonna need a car, and we'll let you borrow a van when you need." So so yeah, so I bought this you know beat up junker you know little Toyota car, and and it was it was. I mean, that car was great for the next, uh, you know, next, I want to say three, four years. It was beat up old car, but, but it, it, it was all I needed. And so, so that's, uh, uh, that's, that's why I chose LA because it was a place that was cheap. That was that, uh, the weather was nice. And, you know, I had read that a bunch of music was being made there. So I thought, well, this is, this is the place to go. This is the place to be. And, uh, Wow. Yeah, so 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 that's that's how I arrived in LA in 98. And tell me about that journey in in summation. I mean, it because if you read like the the press release that I read uh from Berkeley, I was reading the list and I was like, "Oh my god, he's worked with this person and this person, and these people, and he's done this and he's done that." So, from 98 until what? 20 2016? Yep, yeah. I mean, uh, eighteen years. Yeah, you you crammed a lot of stuff in that eighteen years. I I did well. You know, the, I started off at Westlake Audio. That was that was where I started as a, as a runner and and moved my way up to to be a, you know, you you start off by you know getting the the coffee, but then you they they throw you into into learning about how to you know align the machines, align the the twenty four track machines, and you about the consoles and then then they throw you into the sessions and and so that's where where i i got my start and the thing about westlake which was great is it had uh had a bunch of studios uh there were it had two two buildings and between the two buildings there were seven studios it was it was like grand central station of of artists and musicians and and producers and engineers and just every day there was a new session or there were, I should say, there were seven sessions going on with, with seven amazing different artists and engineers and producers. And so, so a day at Westlake was a day when you were seeing in the same, you know, in the same building, 
you, you had, you know, in one room, you might have uh, Mariah Carey, and then the next room, you know, somebody, you know, Umberto was mixing Celine, and then the next room, Quincy was working with Tommy Carey, and then, you know, in, in, the, in the, one of the production rooms, uh, these upstarts, the Neptunes, were doing their little demos, and, and then in another room, you know, you had, I don't know, you, you had, you know, L Cool J cutting vocals, you know, so, so you, and this was just one building, you know, in the other building, you know, you had, I don't know, you had Carol King doing a record and you had in the other room Limp Biscuit doing a record. So you, it was just the, the, the breadth of styles and, and talent that went through there in very, you know, short, you know, very, very quick succession. It was, it was just amazing. So, it was almost you if you stood there you know everything just kind of came to you everything just kind of came through and uh, if and especially if you became you know one of the assistants in the sessions and and you know uh, by the time i left uh, westlake i was i was certainly a guy that everybody asked for everybody you know who came back wanted to wanted to said oh yeah i want to do a session and please i'd like to have Pablo on the session so that meant that uh, either somebody was asking for you or or the manager Steve Burdick would uh, would would always uh, put me on the sessions. Would be like, okay, we've got a really big session coming in, so you know you got to take care of it. And so, so I was just working every day that I could, every day, every night, and uh, and just doing really cool sessions with a bunch of different people. And were you consciously doing something to try to make it so that people would ask for you? Was there? Did you learn any like? learned something along the way that made you say, aha, if I do this or if I behave like this, people ask for me. Did you start to identify the qualities in yourself that appeal to people? There's one person that that comes to mind and, and one one specific thing that comes to mind when you say that. So so there, there was an assistant at Westlake uh, who was way actually at the time that I started, she she was already she was already gone. She was working as a freelance and she was uh, she was working uh, with Quincy Jones all the time, mm. and so she she w- the, the times that I assisted for them that I worked with them, I was always amazed at her. And uh, the thing she had this expression or this this saying she she said she would say I had a she would shoot for having a perfect session, and and that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody you know use that expression like what what does that mean and. And a perfect session for her was was having a session where nothing went wrong. And when I mean nothing went wrong, I mean not even a bad patch. Nothing stopped the session from flowing just just smoothly. And see, at the time, and I don't want to say at the time, but in general, when you're in the studio, I mean, things happen, you know, like, oh, you patch something. Oh, oh hold, sorry, hold on, let me repatch that. Or, oh, you know, you connect something like, oh, well, oh, sorry, that's not turned on. That wasn't plugged in. Or, oh, hold on, let me restart this. Or, you know, or this is misbehaving or let us let us bring another one. And, and what was so impressive to me about the way she ran her sessions was that that there was nothing wrong. Nothing went wrong. And, and part of it had to do with the preparation, with the work that she did ahead of the session. So, so she would kind of, prepare everything and test everything before anybody came in. And so, so by the time anybody came in and, 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 and walked up to a microphone, it was like 
checked, double checked, you know, earphones checked. Everything was was perfect. And so, so she could go an entire day doing a session with nothing going wrong. What I saw is that the, the producers and the musicians, they, it just let them relax. Everybody felt at ease. Everybody felt like, oh, well, everything's taken care of. Everything's under control. And so when even the slightest thing went wrong, I mean, let's say, you know, for some reason we were working on something and, uh, I don't know, we were doing a song and maybe there was a crackle in the, in the line because because maybe a module on the console, you know, hadn't been serviced or or because, you know, somebody was near the patch bay and, you know, some, somebody moved the patch cord and, and she would get so bummed out. She would get like, like really down on like, oh gosh, you know, we should have checked that. We should have. And I'd be like, oh, but you know, come on, this is just one, one, uh, one little thing, you know? And it's like, yeah, but, but it meant that her perfect session wasn't perfect, you know? So, so there was this, this kind of this, um, this bar that, that she set of, of, just making sure that everything was smooth and that that there were no problems in the in the session. And so, um, so her name is Stephanie Gilden, and uh, she's she uh, you know was uh, Quincy's uh, assistant for a long time. And um, and I I just I was so impressed by that that I I thought you know I I want to be like that. I want to make sure that my sessions run that way. And so so yeah, I would you know come in early or you know do whatever it took. To make sure that the sessions were always running smoothly, and I would, I would check, you know, and whenever we connected, you know, anything, I would make sure that it was it was a good module. We were in a good channel. We were using, you know, the right, the good microphone, you know, with the right mic pre's, with the, you know, and and I I learned which ones work, which ones didn't work, which ones were the better sounding LA two A's, the, the you know the not so good sounding LA two A's. You know, if you wanted this kind of sound, this one, and if you wanted that. So so I I. I just, um, yeah, uh, I spent a lot of time figuring out how to make the sessions super smooth and super, uh, you know, glitchless, if you will. All right. I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Pablo Munguia, but it is time for a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio-Technica. Just want to mention, you know, if you haven't been over to their website, audio-technica.com, head on over there. You know, they do a wide range of products, uh, mostly transducers, uh, so that would include microphones of all types, uh, headphones, turntable cartridges. And uh, as you know, they've been around since 1962. And uh, they kind of know what they're doing. And they make some great products. And of course, you know I'm a big fan. I use the uh, Audio-Technica BP40, which is the mic I'm talking into right now. And I, uh, of course, love my uh, ATHM40Xs, my headphones. Super inexpensive headphones, about 100 bucks, And really, really enjoy them. Enjoy the hell out of them, to tell you the truth. And also, you know, if you are into vinyl, they definitely have turntables and they have some cartridges. So be sure to check them out. Head on over to audio-technica.com and uh, take a look around. They got some cool stuff. So that's it. Let's get back into it with Pablo Munguia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So how long did you spend there in, in at Westlake? I was at Westlake for three, a little over three years. Uh-huh. And at any point in that time, were you thinking long-term, like, I'm going to make a career of this, therefore I need to do the following things to get there? Um, yes. I mean, yes and no. I mean, when, you know, when you're working as a, you know, as a runner and assistant in a studio, you are just 
working around the clock. So I'm not sure that I had much of a plan of what was going to happen next. I was just working, trying to do as good a job as I could in the, in the sessions mm -hmm. and meet as many, many engineers and producers as I could and artists, you know, and, and just, uh, yeah, I wasn't thinking in terms of like, oh, okay, well, this is going to help me because I just was thinking of, oh, okay, so today I get to work with, you know, I don't know, Glenn Ballard, who I love and admire, and I think he's so awesome. Okay, well, I'm going to do the best job possible today because, you know, I, I want to make a good impression, you know, and, and uh, you know, the next day we're like, okay, you know, Tommy Vicari is going to come in and, you know, I got to figure out how he gets the sound so effortlessly. And so, so I was, you know, I did my best effort, you know, or, you know, certainly Umberto, I, I tried so hard to make him happy, you know, it was, it's very hard to make Umberto happy, but, uh, you know, I, I tried really hard and, you know, every, every producer that came through, every engineer, I just, just tried my best to make them happy and to, you know, feel, make them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I was, no, I wasn't thinking in terms of that. I mean, another guy who was a big influence and, and, and when you talk about like what things, what, you know, what, what kind of traits I think are, were very useful was, was a guy named David Doe, and he's he's also an amazing engineer. Worked with you know Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, George Benson, you know, just tons of credits. Janet Jackson, you know, he's 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 a really cool guy. But the the thing about about Dave that I love is that he is just the nicest guy you'll ever meet. You know, just super nice guy, and he's he, he's just nice to everybody. I know I, I've I've can never remember a time when I thought Dave is angry or upset or he lost it because something went wrong. Dave just never got angry, never got upset. It was just, he never, I, I mean, I've known Dave now for, gosh, over, over 18 years and I can never remember a time when he's been upset in the studio or, or anywhere else for that matter. And so he had this just really easygoing attitude, no matter what happened, if something went wrong, something wasn't right, he was like, oh, okay, well, I guess we better fix that. You know, it was never, there was never a problem with Dave. And uh, and so, you know, everybody likes Dave. Everybody, you know, who knows David Doe, like really likes him. And, you know, he's a really, really cool guy. And so so I tried to be that as well, uh, to emulate that, you know, of being, you know, being a nice guy and, you know, being a, a good guy in the studio and, and try not get not to get upset, not, not to get angry and... Um, I think that has certainly helped, you know, with everything else. Did you, you also went on to uh, work with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, with Dave actually. As a matter of fact, that's mm. how I met him. The first time I worked with them, we were doing a session with Sting. It was it was uh, Terry mostly. Uh, I think uh, I think Jimmy was was working was working on the session remotely, but but it was mostly Terry. Another guy who's who's also a, a pretty pretty famous producer as well, a big Jim who works with them as well, uh, came in to do the session and it was just a fantastic session. I mean, I just it was so much fun and I remember Terry would comp all his vocals, which was like unheard of. It was like, oh my gosh, because by the time, by the way, at the time, uh, no Pro Tools. There was you know, Pro Tools was 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 kind of still off on the horizon as this kind of like, oh yeah, there's this machine, but it's super unstable and it always crashes and nobody wants to use it. And so uh, Terry was just a whiz on on a radar machine. I don't I don't know if you remember that one, but it's it was it was a 
Yeah, the Atari, it was the, the Atari radar. The Atari no. radar, right. And it was a 24-track digital machine. That was what's cool about it. But but it worked just like a 24-track, except that it had a hard drive and you could edit on it and you could comp vocals within the machine. So, I mean, you they would still run the tracks when they were comping through the console. So there, there was a, it was an analog bounce, but he could play back and he could quickly do the edits and, and just jump back and choose the tracks among a bunch of tracks. And, and yeah, I mean, I remember just sitting there going like, going like, wow, he can, you know, he can comp his own vocals in the, on the Otari, on the radar. And uh, he would spend hours just, you know, sitting there typing away, typing away, typing away and, and, and getting the vocals comped. And after that, I went on to do a few sessions with, with Jimmy and Terry yeah, I mean they're they're great guys. I love I I love working with them. The, the the sessions that I did. As an up and coming engineer working in these environments, being exposed to very you know largely famous people such as Sting, uh, were you starstruck at all? And ah right, well okay, that actually that brings up a really good point. So so one of the things I learned, I guess it was through a bunch of different engineers, but one of the things I learned uh, in the studios was that. See, when, when famous artists come in and, and, you know, when famous, you know, singers come in, there's this whole world that exists outside the studio, you know, and, and, and they're, they're famous out there and they're, they've, they've got a, they, they have this whole, kind of whole persona going on out there. But then when they, it was at least my experience that when they walked into the studio and, and kind of camera shut off and, and, and the, you know, the, the, the paparazzi were, you know, safely, you know, kept at bay in the parking lot, then a, a different vibe kind of emerged. And, and it was a vibe that allowed them to be creative. And it was a, it was a vibe, it was a, it was a whole, um, it was, of course, a combination of, of the vibe that the producer brought to the table, but also we would, you know, we would set up candles, we would set up, you know, dim the lights. And so there was, we, we try to set things up so everything was just, just kind of low key and just, um, just a place where they could go in and be creative and, and take chances and, you know, and kind of go for it and, and try, you know, try different things. And so what I, what I learned from that was that uh, the last thing that an artist needs in the studio is one more fan there. You know, they want to work in a place where they're just working with regular folks. You know, again, again, going back to this thing at IBM, just they, they just want to be able to work with, with the regular guys. And so, so I tried to be that, to be just treat them the same way that I treat any regular person. Just say hello, be polite, and, and, and just not be a fan. I was, I mean, I, I kind of set up this rule for myself of, of A, don't ask for an autograph, B, don't ask for a picture, C, don't be a fan. Don't try to be a fan. And I mean, of course, I was a fan of a lot of these artists and a lot of these, uh, you know, producers and engineers, but I found it was way better to be a friend, to, you know, to treat them as, as normal folks than, and, and, and to be treated that way than it was to be a fan. Mm -hmm. And I found that, I mean, I've always done it as, as a way of helping them feel relaxed in the studio and, and whatever the situation is so that they, it, it's not, they don't feel like, oh, great, now I got to, it, it's almost like they, they have to become somebody else when they're in front of a fan. And, and I tried to very much not, not feel that they had to do that. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a good policy. 
I think in general to have, because then you're just another professional and, you know, I mean, I've, I've met a lot of, obviously through this podcast and in even outside this podcast, I met a lot of people whose work I admire. And when I was up and coming, it was more like, you know, oh my gosh, there's so-and-so or there's, you know, there's this person. But when you're dealing with a person as a peer or as, you know, just another human being, it's, it really, I don't know. I don't know what, it kind of levels the playing field mentally and makes everybody relax. Yeah, I think the vibe completely changes, and 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 uh, and I always I always talk about this that uh, if you really want to help the session, you you just wanna just kind of you wanna bring everything down, just kind of you know, lower all the all the tension and all the you know all the hype and 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 I think that's what helps. I, okay, this is my opinion of what helps sessions the most, and that's what I try to bring all the time. You know, not not. I'll be starstruck and, and, and just, you know, treat people like regular people. Now you went on to work in some areas of audio that I don't think a lot of people really consider the, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of people we talk to on the show, the focus is making records. Um, Mm -hmm. and occasionally we, 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 uh, we have people on who, like we just had Jessica Thompson on a few episodes, episodes ago, who really specializes Mm -hmm. in archiving and mastering We've had, uh, uh, you know, film sound people and, and, and as well as some artists, but you have done, uh, sound with teams of people for not only the Grammys, but for the Super Bowl. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so that, that whole, that whole thing is fairly different and uh, it's different in many ways and it's the same in many ways. So, so the, the part where it's different, and and you know, we can talk about how I started. I mean, I, it's again, it's one of those. I, I'm, I was very lucky and very very fortunate to to be asked to work in those in those projects. And um, but where it's different is um, in that because these are uh, massive events that that have you know that are broadcast to millions of people, and and there's there's a ton of money involved. You know this advertisers and in the case of the, the, the halftime show it's the NFL's involved and and the artist is involved and and so you know everything just takes on this this just gigantic uh, you know dimension you know the, the everything is just uh, everything gets exaggerated quite mm. a bit you know and so so I I think that the trick there in these shows is again, to figure out how to keep it simple, how to keep it, you know, bring it down to a scale that that is manageable. Because you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all human, so so it is a huge show and it's a huge event. But it has to, you know, it eventually has to come down to being something that that is manageable. So that's the part where it's different. You know, that the amount of pressure and the, you know, the level of of uh, expectation is, is is just huge. How I ended up in the, in the halftime show. Is uh yeah let's let's see so it goes back a little bit to when when I was working on 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 all these records I mean it was it was just the first few years was great because every you know I just had a ton of work and and I remember you know I just kept getting calls and calls and calls from record labels saying hey we want you to work with this artist and that artist and the other artist and or or one engineer would recommend me to work with 
this project or that project. And so I was just kind of jumping you know, from one project to the next. And I was just super busy. And, and I was so busy that I, I remember every year at the beginning of the year, I'd say, okay, well, I guess I'm going to raise my rate. And I would raise my rate by 100 bucks. I'd be like, okay, well, last year was this much. So next year it's going to be X plus 100. And then the following year, be like, okay, X plus another 100. And, and it just kept going that way. And, and every time I, you know, I quoted anybody like, okay, this is my rate. They're like, sure, no problem. Nobody batted an eye. I'm pretty certain it was around 2004, 2005 is, is really when I felt the bottom drop out, when I felt like, whoa, what's going on? What happened? And I mean, the, 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 the checks and, and the calls just, just stopped. It was just this really abrupt, you know, like, whoa, what happened? You know, and, and when you're a freelance, when you're a guy who's just depending on the next phone call, if the phone stops ringing, it's like you really freak out. I mean, I, especially if you're, you know, if you're living day to day, because even, even then I was, you know, I, we were still, I was still trying to, you know, pay off. Remember all that debt? I was still like making it up back to the surface, right? And I was feeling like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm finally starting to be able to pay off all these, these debts. And I'm finally looking like it's going to work out. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, this, this, this big cliff. So I remember really freaking out at the time. I was thinking, wow, okay, what's going to happen now? And, and so for, for a long time, so Westlake Audio, where, where I was working, also, um, if you, in LA, a lot of people remember that Westlake was also selling equipment. So they, 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 it was a recording studio, but they also sold equipment. And they also equipment because the owner of Westlake, the original owner of Westlake, Glenn Phoenix, was the designer of Westlake Audio speakers. So they sold the speakers and they, you know, they sold other equipment as well. But, but that was kind of part of the deal. So, so Westlake had this arm that was just focused on sales. Mm-hmm. So one of the guys who used to work at Westlake as a salesman was a good buddy of mine. And so when Westlake stopped selling equipment at some point, he went over to another company and started working for them uh, for RSP, and he um, was was selling gear out of there. and And so I kept buying equipment from him, and and so every so often he'd call me and he'd be like, "Hey, listen, you know, I've got this guy who setting up a studio at his place, and he needs a guy. and uh, Would you be interested?" I'd be like, "No, thank you. I'm doing fine, thank you." But but now, you know, in, in these these days, I was um, suddenly I was like, "Okay, well, hey, you know." <laughs> Your guy need help, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And by that point, I had um, I had become really good at uh, at making Pro Tools work and be stable, and that was that was one of the things I was I was kind of known for. And and so so he called me and said, "Hey, I just sold the Pro Tools system to this guy, and he needs somebody to go set it up for him. And do you want to go, go do that?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll go, I'll go." And so. Um, the guy is this guy named Michael Abbott, and uh, he works primarily in television. Uh, he's uh, he's right now he's uh, the, the the broadcast mixer for The Voice, and you know he's he's worked on a bunch of different shows. He's, he's a long long career. So Mike Abbott invited me to to well he first said okay well here's the Pro Tools system set it up and and then then he said well have you ever mixed anything for television and I was like yeah sure I've mixed a couple specials for Justin Timberlake and and he was like yeah sure okay great so you know how to mix television of course I had mixed a concert that was broadcast you know that was a slightly different thing but, <laughs> but but I was like yeah sure I've mixed television and so uh he uh 
And he said, yeah, so this, I'm working on the show. It was uh, the Steve Harvey big time. And it was a kind of a review show um, and comedy. And, uh, and he said, well, uh, we need a post mixer. So, you know, why don't you, why don't you uh, go talk to the post supervisor and, and see if they'll hire you. And, and so I said, sure. And so I had a meeting and, it was the same conversation. Have you ever mixed for television? Like, yeah, sure. Like, okay, great. You're hired. And so I, I worked on that show and that led to me working with Mike on a couple of other shows. But, but uh, basically, again, in the world of television, again, Pro Tools was this, this like nobody was touching it because it was like, well, this is a really unstable machine. And, and, you know, if you're doing live television, the last thing you want is this unstable machine. And so I was introducing them to 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 that world, and at the time, uh, I uh, started working on a few television shows. And somehow, a guy named uh, Ed Green, who is a legend, and I again, I'm just just very very fortunate that that he he somehow heard my name and and and, and he invited me to work with him. And, um, and so Ed Green. You need to know that Ed Green is 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 probably the most decorated, I should say, mixer in, I would say, in the history of American television. He's he's just uh, he he basically wrote the book of how how television mixing is done. So so Ed Green recommended me to do a job in uh, in China. So this was the, the Special Olympics in 2007, which was a year before the, the Olympics in China. And the, the Chinese government very, very smartly had hired a production company, an American production company, to go and produce the, the opening ceremonies of the Special Olympics in Shanghai. And this was, I think at the time, they, they hired uh, this very famous producer, Don Misher, who's again who's you know one of the you know there's there's a there's a handful of producers in the world who who do massive events like this like the olympics or like the super bowl and 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 so don misher is is you know if not the top guy he's one of the top guys he's been doing this for a long long time he's been doing television and and uh as well as these these massive events so, so they needed somebody to go to China to to do this, and and like I said, the Chinese government hired Don Misher to. At the time, it was the idea was that maybe they would they would see if you do a good job on the Special Olympics, maybe we'll hire you to do the the Olympics. But what was really going on was that the Chinese government was learning how do you put on one of these massive shows. Of course, and uh, every every day we had you know a whole gaggle of folks with with notebooks and 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 and, uh, and pencils and just scribbling down everything that they saw and and in the evenings they would they would walk in and they would they would they would go in and behind the racks they would just start drawing everything that they saw and like how everything was connected and and how all the all the gear was 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 being put together and and they they were just learning how how we were doing it and uh, so anyway uh this this gig in China was you can imagine it was you know the most fun thing to go to Shanghai and 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 sit there in the heat and and do this this uh, this this job for for a few weeks. So Ed Green sent another guy in his place, a guy named Larry Reed, to be the the, the broadcast mixer. The 
The designer of the whole thing was Pat Baltzell, who uh, who also is the designer uh, on the Super Bowl and the, the audio designer on the Super Bowl. So, um, so Pat was out there, and and Don Misher was there. Yeah, and so Larry Reed went there, and and they needed a guy to go and run the Pro Tools systems for them. And so Ed Green said, "Well, I know this guy. He's you know he's he's a really good guy, and and so so he recommended me for the gig. And and of course at the time I was like." Go to China and do a job over there? Yeah, I'll go. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I was so excited. You know, it was, it was great. Plus, there was work. Plus, it was work. Yeah, I was like, hey, I, I get to do, you know, I get to go do a show and uh, and uh, and it's work. And, and to be honest, I had never done anything like that before. I had never done a show like that. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. But I knew enough to to bring, you know, all the gear that I thought I needed um, I remember I brought two two big, you know, HD Pro Tools HD systems, and and actually I brought a third one because they wanted to mix uh, post afterwards after the after the show was done, and so so I had actually three, you know, full blown, you know, just gigantic racks of, of gear, and so I thought, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought if if one of the two rigs has a problem, I'll still have a third one right there that that I can. That I can use and yeah I I did that show and I just like I said I don't think that I was really prepared for for what doing uh, an a live event and the amount of pressure and the amount of well the speed at which you have to respond to everything and I mean Don I mean I I love Don to death he's you know just just love him he's he's a great great guy and he was very frustrated with me he was just like I remember, and, and by the way, when Don gets upset, he he's a big Texan guy, and he just loses it, and he just <laughs> screams, and he. I remember he he ran across from the control booth to to our audio booth, and he was like, "Okay, listen, are you gonna figure this out in time, or am I gonna have to fly somebody else out here to do it?" And I was just like, Ugh. "Oh my god, you know," and, I'll figure it out. and I was like. I was like, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll figure it out. I promise. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah, Larry Reed actually helped me a lot. He, he said, okay, you and I are going to sit here and we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure out what you have to do to, to get this sorted out. And I said, okay, all I need is time. I just need to get this organized. And if I can get it organized, I'll be fine. And she's like, okay, and we're going to run through the queues and we're going to run through everything until you figure out what you need to do. And I said, okay, cool. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. And, and we, I mean, we worked I worked around the clock just to to get this figured out, and and Larry helped me to you know figure out you know what they were looking, what they needed, and you know when he calls for that, he's going to need this, and you better have this prepared. And so he was he was really great, and and Pat also helped a lot. Now Pat was also helping me with with all the music because because you know Pat's a musician as well. He has he's he's trained as a as a classical musician, so so he. Um, you know, this Quincy Jones actually was also involved. He 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 produced all the music. So so um, so so Pat was also helping me in terms of like, okay, well, you know, you're gonna kind of wanna gonna wanna do this and wanna do that, and and so I was just okay, great, and I just like sit there and just like type away, just edit edit edit, and 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 just kind of do everything that you know to that that they were asking and getting everything set up. And thankfully, that gig went really well. Everybody's really happy, you know, at the end of the, the day. Don was very happy. I, I mixed the post on that, right? I mean, it was like, so after, you know, we went through the whole thing, 
we threw one of the Pro Tools systems into the back of a van and then drove across town and set up a shop in a, in a little post facility. And, and then they, they sat there and they edited all night. And then when they were done, I was just completely burnt out. But I sat there and for the next 10 hours, I mixed the post on this thing. And, you know, that got shipped out. And then a few a few months later, they called me again to remix the post for you know for a rebroadcast. And so I thought, well, that was that was great. No, I had so much fun. And so thankfully that year, Don Misher was also producing the halftime show of the Super Bowl, or I should say the following year. And that halftime show of the Super Bowl was the Prince Super Bowl. Ah. And so one morning I got a call from the producer of the show, uh, Rob Payne. He called and he said, hey, are you available to do the show in uh, Miami? And, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, yeah, sure. And I didn't even know who the artist was. I just said, yeah, I'll go. Don Misher, I'll go wherever he's going. And so, so that was the first uh, Super Bowl that I worked on. Yeah, I guess I haven't. Uh, I've been working on every Super Bowl ever since. This is without a doubt, the show where you see the most television trucks parked outside of a stadium. If you're doing a game, for example, of uh, an NFL game, maybe you'll see one or two trucks parked outside. If you're like on the Grammys, for example, we have maybe two trucks parked outside. If you're doing the Oscars, maybe there's four trucks parked outside. If you're doing the Super Bowl, there's at least 30 trucks parked outside. So it's a world of... of folks doing this and, and, and engineers and broadcast engineers and video engineers and audio engineers. So, so yeah, there's, there's a ton of folks doing this. Does it, uh, is that all union based? Yes. Yeah. All the, all of the TV work is union based. I, I joined the, the IA, the I'm local 695, uh, which is the union of, of, uh, it, what's it called? It's uh, video operator and video and audio assist union of it you know it's it's the audio union for broadcast for live broadcast television okay i yeah i wish i i wish i knew exactly the exact name of it but i i don't quite remember right now but it's uh you know what uh union guys get a bad rap it's i i have to say uh you know everybody you know certainly i had the same impression like oh well oh gosh the union i don't want to join the union but you know what the union is great i'm so happy to be part of the union and and the guys who are union guys i have to tell you they are some of the best engineers in the business no doubt if you're in a high pressure situation if you are in as these shows generally are if you are under pressure with very little time and you have to get it done exactly right over and over and over these are the guys that are going to do it but the i mean the other side of the union by the way is that they protect you. I mean, something that doesn't happen in studio recording. Anybody who's worked in, in, in a recording session knows that, you know, you make your deal and you are not on the clock. You make a deal by the day or maybe if you're lucky by the hour. But, but certainly in most cases, you made a deal for the whole project. And you know that the more time you work on a project, your rate is going down, right? You're seeing that oh, yeah. rate just drop and drop and drop and 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 you start to look at the clock and you start to look at the calendar like like going like oh shit how long is this going to go for if you're doing a union gig it's the completely the opposite completely the other way around because the union is very careful about protecting union workers and in their hours so if 
producer says, okay, we're going to work for eight hours and they decide to work for 12 hours, you're like, no problem. Because number one, you're going to get paid for every hour that you're there. And number two, if they keep you there for more than eight hours, they're going to pay you overtime. They're going to pay time and a half. And they keep you for more than 12 hours. They're going to pay double time. And, uh, and you, so you want to keep me here for 16 hours? You know, you're smiling all the way because you're smiling all the way to the bank. You know, you're, <laughs> it, you are well protected. They also protect you in terms of, you know, making sure you get, you get to eat at, you know, reasonable intervals. You know, after six hours, you have to eat. And if you don't eat after six hours, they're going to pay you again for not feeding you. And they either feed you or they pay you, you know. They, so, so there's, and by the way, when I say feed you, I mean, they, they're going to let you go eat, you know. They're going to let you take a break for an hour and go eat, even if it's half an hour. Or they, they might bring food for you. But the cool thing about the union is it protects not just the way that you work and the, the way that, that and it keeps the, keeps the sessions reasonable, but it also protects you money-wise. And it also protects you in the rates, you know. The producers can't tell you, hey, listen, I don't have much money, so could you do this one for a lot less, you know, for, can you do this one for half the rate? And it, you basically, you can't, you know, you, 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 they can't do that. So I wish that there were a union for, for recording and for studio recording. Because, I, I sure as hell know, wish there was. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it'd be, it'd be fantastic. So, uh, I've had very good luck with the union and, and I feel that they, they, uh, they've done a really good job of protecting me, you know, in that, in that arena. What I'm curious about is this, Exit from Los Angeles and moving to Spain. One of my old teachers from Berkeley, way back when I was in, in music school, it was a guy named Stephen Weber. He taught me a class that was, at the time, was called Remixing. He came out here to Valencia, to Spain, to start what has become Berkeley's first satellite campus. In, in the, now, he didn't start the campus, but he came to start the program in music production. He had invited me uh, to, to come teach a, a few years ago, and and at the time I was, you know, I was really busy, and I was actually I had just gotten married, and my wife was going to move from Mexico to LA, and so so it just the the timing wasn't quite right. But uh, but he he called me again last year, and and he said, hey, you know, I'm I'm going to be leaving Valencia, and uh, would you like to come and uh, and and take over for me and. And run the program and i was like wow okay and i remember I, my wife we were sitting at breakfast and when she heard this she was like i'm going i'm game <laughs> i'll go teach i was like yeah and so i thought uh well if uh you know if she's willing to go then then i'm then i'm in you know and but uh, one of the things in you know one of the first things i told steven and, and we had talked about this before is that i said look i i do all these really fun and there was really amazing shows in LA and uh, in the US, you know, the, the halftime show of the Super Bowl and the Grammys and the Oscars. And, and then there's the American Music Awards and the, the Billboard Awards and the, the, the VMAs. And, and I said, listen, I don't want to lose these shows. I don't want to lose the opportunity of doing these shows. And so whatever we work out, I would very much need to be able to come back and work on these shows. And and the cool thing about Berkeley is they said, yeah, absolutely. We want you to work on these shows. We want you to keep doing this stuff. And so, so we've worked out uh, a schedule in, in, a, in a way that I can, that I can still fly back and, and work on the shows. And so for me at that point, it was a win-win. I was like, okay, well then let's, let's, let's figure this out. Let's make this work. So, 
So it's going to be a little bit more of a, a longer commute to get to the shows, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm very hopeful that it's going to work out. You know, I'm going to still be able to work on on both both things. And and um, you know, I on the other hand, I also think that it's uh, it'll be really good for the students to uh, to have me come back and do the shows, and and hopefully I can bring some of them too as well with me. You know, bring bring a few students along to. To work as interns, or you know, to uh, observe how how we do uh, how we do these shows. You know? so, Are you uh, teaching the classes in English or Spanish? Everything at, at uh, in Berkeley Valencia is in English. From an immigration standpoint, was that a relatively easy process because you were you coming to the U.S. as a student? And oh, wait, and did you oh, ever become yeah. a U.S. citizen in in that time period? I've now been in the U.S. for almost. I've been in and out of the U.S., I should say, for almost 30 years, if not more than that. Mm. So, yes, immigration was was definitely a tricky, very, very tricky thing. I, of course, first uh, came to the U.S. as a student. Initially, when I started working, I was working under practical training, which is an extension of the student visa. So so I could extend my visa a little bit and, and work in practical training, and that, that was allowed. Eventually, when I started working at, uh, at Westlake, and my my uh, practical training ran out. Uh, they helped me with uh, getting a work visa, which was uh, you know it's an H one visa, and then, and they were my employer of record, and uh, so that they that that was really cool that that they helped me there. But eventually, I I actually I actually got married in the U S. I I was you know very very happy um, living in the U S. And so I got married, and and in that way I. Uh, I got my green card that way. I mean, by that point, I had been working for three years under under an H one visa. So, so then that transitioned to a, a you know a residency, and then um, I'd say about six or seven years later, I became a citizen. And uh, and and I mean, by that point, I had been living in the U.S. for so long, I was really interested in you know in, in the direction of you know the country and you know how things were. We're going and so so I wanted to vote. I mean that was the biggest thing. I wanted to be able to vote. I mean up to that point I'd been voting with my wallet, you know, supporting different candidates. But but I really wanted to be able to vote and and uh, I remember very much that that I was you know I was very excited to you know vote on my first election and and uh, yeah so I'm a U.S. citizen and so so now it's very interesting because the whole citizenship process is something that or or. Or immigration process is something that I thought, okay, I'm done with that. I've never have to think about that again. Well, now I'm starting over in Spain. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I've been I've been going through the whole uh, the whole uh, circus of immigration and getting a, a work visa and all that stuff. And and of course, Berkeley, you know, has been helping with that. So, uh, thank you so much, man. This is really great to to hear your story. Very fascinating story at that. Thank you for having me. I mean, this has been great, great fun and. Uh, I'm very thankful to Steve for you know mentioning me and uh, yeah, and I want to wish you luck at in your new position at Berkeley in in Spain and thank you, thank you. We'll have a great morning, great day. Thank you very much. Okay, talk to you later, Pablo. It was great talking, Matt. Take care. Bye bye. All right, Pablo Munguia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Real pleasure to have him on. We are out of time, and so it's time to thank everybody involved and. I like to start, of course, with Mr. Cliff Truesdale, who created the music here. Right there, yeah, Cliff Truesdale. And um, also want to thank Chuck Smith for his voice and Cole Williams for his help with social media and, and YouTube. 
And I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. And as always, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.